1977, the group Fleetwood Mac recorded a song called Don't Stop. It became very popular when Bill Clinton chose it as sort of his uh, campaign theme song in 1992. And I'm not going to sing it for you, uh, nor are we going to play it because once you hear it, it gets in your brain and you can't get it out. But in that song, which is very sort of addictive, uh, there is a very deceptively powerful chorus. The chorus goes, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Don't stop. It'll soon be here. It'll be better than before. Yesterday's gone. Yesterday's gone. Now, this was written by the keyboard player when she was going through her divorce. Now, it can apply to suffering like it did in her situation, but it also is really a powerful truth in all of life. The idea that when you think about tomorrow, that when you focus on the future, it can bring hope and clarity and comfort to the present. That in her situation, to try to make it through the day, she was encouraging herself, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Focus on what's coming, not where you are right now or not where you've been, but what's coming in the future. Now, the power of the future to bring hope and clarity to the present, this is something that we see in, in many aspects of life. Take a high school student, for example, who begins to think about college and their future. Well, that can have a number of effects on their present experience. One, if they're having a bad experience in high school, it can bring them comfort to say, look, this is not, high school is not all there is to life. There is a future coming. I'm going to be set free from this at some point. It can also cause them to become serious about their grades as they begin to think about going to a university and what kind of academics are necessary to get in there. That thought about the future can bring comfort and clarity to the present. The same is true for an engaged couple. The more an engaged couple begins to think about their married life together, A, it can bring comfort to the fact that dating and engagement is not the ideal existence in life. It also can affect their behavior as they begin to think, okay, well, what should we be doing with our money? Where should we be planning on living as we begin to think about ourselves, not in terms of being single, but in terms of being a married couple? And those thoughts about the future can bring comfort and clarity to the present. The same is true for those of us who may be struggling to get out of debt. That as we think about a sort of debt-free future, maybe five years from now, That can bring comfort to us now as we're straining under the burden of debt. It can also help us make better decisions as we plan for reaching that point. And the more we think about what will it be like five years from now to be free from debt, the more we think about that future, the more it can bring comfort and clarity to the present. Or think about perhaps the last time you attended a funeral. A funeral of somebody who lived life well. When you go to that funeral and you hear testimonies about how God had blessed this person and used this person in mighty ways, it can cause you and I to think about our own future. Think about, well, what will be said at our funeral? What kind of life are we living? And the more you think about that future, 
the more it can begin to affect how you live in the present because you say, that's where I want to end up. That's what I want to be true about me. Well, if the future has this power to bring comfort and clarity to the present for a high school student or an engaged couple or someone struggling with debt or when we attend a funeral, how much more is it true when we stop to think about our future salvation? What will happen when Christ returns? That's Peter's encouragement to us today. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. And Peter wants to encourage us to spend some time thinking about the future when Christ returns. So if you take, have a Bible, please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. To this point in the epistle of Peter, he's been talking to us about salvation. That's what I was praying about and I prayed as we see this candle lit up here. Salvation is the idea that God sees us where we're at in the midst of darkness, in the midst of sin, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of chaos. And he reaches out to us and gives us new life. Peter defines salvation as new birth into a living hope, meaning a future characterized by life and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And Peter has been rejoicing with us that although we're beginning to experience some of the blessings of that salvation now, there's coming a day in, a fut in the future when we will receive fully the gift of salvation and be rescued from everything. Well, as Peter has been talking about this salvation, he now transitions into some instructions that he has for us, the listeners to God's Word. And I'm going to read verses 13 through 25 of 1 Peter 1. Therefore, because of this coming future salvation, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Now that's a big chunk of scripture, and there's a lot of stuff in there. 
And when you listen to that read, it can feel a little bit overwhelming, like, wow, there's about two million subjects right here. And we can spend lots of time on all the different things here. But what I want to tell you is, is that although when we read through it in a chunk like that, it can feel a little bit overwhelming or that there's a lot of material here, what Peter's done is he's provided an underlying organizing principle that makes all of the material he's put there hang together. It may not be immediately obvious in English, but in Greek there is an underlying structure. What Peter's done is he's organized everything that he has to say in these verses around four commands. Four commands. Even though in English there may feel like there are more, in Greek there are only four imperatives, four commands in this section. They happen to be the first four commands in the book. Um, until this point, Peter has not told us to do anything. He simply described for us what God has done for us. Now he's going to provide for us our proper response. And these four commands are not only what this section is organized around, they will reappear throughout the letter because they're really the four most important things that Peter wants us to think about and to do in light of the theme of salvation. Now, of those four commands, the first is the key. It's not that it's the most important one. It's that it's the organizing principle around which the other three commands make sense. The first command provides the framework in which to understand the other three things that Peter says that we need to do. So let's begin looking at the first of these four commands. It's found in verse 13. It is set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. The command is, Peter says, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Now, not just some random tomorrow, not just, well, what will life be like five years from now, but a very specific tomorrow, a day in which Jesus Christ returns. And Peter says, set your hope on that. Think about that. Focus your attention on that future time. When he says, with minds that are alert and fully sober, he's talking about engaging in a process of mental discipline, meaning forcing yourself to think about tomorrow. We don't naturally do that. We like to live in the present. This is why parents of high school students often say to the high school student, what are you planning on doing when high school is done? Where are you thinking about going to school? The reason we do that is because you're trying to force people to mentally engage with how do you envision the future? What do you think it looks like? Because we know, parents, don't we? That the more you can get them to think about the future, the more it can affect their behavior in the present. Peter's saying the same thing to us as Christians. Look, it's too easy to just go through our Christian life and just be focused on the present. Peter says we have to discipline ourselves. We have to train ourselves to consciously think about the future. To set our minds not on the present, not even on the past, but on the future. What will life be like 
when Jesus Christ returns. That's the framework in which the other three commands come. Namely, Peter is going to help us think about the future through these other three commands. So the first command is, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Set your mind on the future, the grace that's going to come to us when Jesus Christ returns. The second command is found in verse 15. And it's the command, be holy. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. And command number two, be holy. Now it's important to note that as this command is introduced in verse 14, Peter says, as obedient children, as obedient children, be holy. Now the point is, obedient children is a statement about the future. When Peter says, don't stop thinking about tomorrow, think about what's going to be like when the grace of God comes to us, when Jesus returns. He's saying that on that day, you and I will be obedient children. That think about what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. We're going to be free from sin. Meaning that all the things that we've done wrong will be absolutely forgiven and forgotten and gone. But more than that, even our ability to sin will be gone. The grace that's coming, the salvation that God is bringing, is that when Jesus appears, you and I who are believers in Jesus will be unable to sin. Isn't that great? That means all of this battle that we're having with lust or with envy or with greed, it'll be gone. Not just the lustful or envious or greedy things that we've done, but even our capacity to engage in sin will be gone. And Peter says, think about that for a minute. Think about what that's going to happen in the future, that when Jesus comes, part of the grace he's going to bring to us is salvation from the presence of sin. We will no longer have the capability or ability to sin. We will be obedient children. Now, what does that have to do with the present? Well, consider an example of a young man. We'll call him John. John wants to get married. And so he wants to attract a wife. So John does what all of his friends around him are doing to attract a wife, which means that he spends time going out looking for one. He regularly gets all dressed up and he spends lots of time and lots of money and lots of energy going around from place to place trying to find a female that he's attracted to. When he's in those places, John does some things that he probably wouldn't normally do if he wasn't trying to do this, to try to draw attention to himself, to try to flirt with other people, to try to be an attractive person. Now, he doesn't find any fulfillment in this. This is not really enjoyable for him. But it's how the game is played, and it's what all of his friends around him are doing. And so every Friday night and Saturday night, John's out doing all of these things, spending all of this time, all of this energy, all of this effort, acting in all sorts of crazy ways, all in an attempt to find a girl who might be attracted to him. 
Now imagine that John meets Emily. And John and Emily fall in love. And they become engaged. Well, at this point, hopefully, John can now stop doing all of those things he was doing before. He can now stop spending all of that time and money and energy going from place to place looking for a future spouse. He can stop acting like a fool trying to draw attention to himself. He can stop trying to flirt with everybody he runs into. Why? Because he now has a different future than the people around him do. All the guys that he used to go out with and do all these things with, his future is different than their future. He's got a spouse that he's going to be married to. He's got a very different looking future than they have. Once he focuses on that and realizes that, that affects how he acts in the present. This is what Peter is saying to us today. Look, you and I who are believers in Jesus, we have a different future than the people around us. That means that we don't have to be obsessed about sports like everybody around us is obsessed about sports because we've got a different future than they do. It means that we don't have to be obsessed about how we looked and how beautiful we are like the people around us are obsessed about those things because we have a different future than they do. It means that when we go to work, we don't have to fight with our coworkers and lie to our boss and, and be engaged in the same kind of office politics that everybody around us is engaged in. Because we have a different future than they do. We don't have to constantly be comparing ourselves to everybody else around us. Because that's what they're doing. Because we have a different future than they do. What Peter's trying to say is, look, you don't have to act like the people around you. Because you have a different future than they do. And the good news about the fact that Jesus Christ is going to return and make us obedient children in the future. Is that we don't have to conform to our evil desires today. We're free to live a different life. We're free to act differently. That's what be holy means. It means we're free to look different than the world around us because we have a different future. All the stuff the world values, money, beauty, popularity, success, all of that stuff is going to go away. And in the future, who we will be is obedient children of our heavenly Father. Peter says the more time you spend thinking about that, the more time you spend thinking about how your future is different than the future of the people around you, the more it's going to affect how you behave. So Peter's command, be holy, be different, be different than the people around you, is actually a command to say, you and I don't have to live our lives the way everybody around us is living their life. We can be different because we have a different future than they do. The third command is found in verse 17. So far, Peter has told us, don't stop thinking about tomorrow. And because when tomorrow comes, you're going to be an obedient child of God, you're free to begin to act that way now. Verse 17, the third command Peter gives us. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Live in the fear 
of God is the third command. Now, when you hear that statement, live in the fear of God, because you're going, you and I are going to appear before God as an impartial judge. One way to read that is to read it as a negative statement. Look, someday you're going to appear before God. He's not going to be happy. But remember, everything that Peter has said in this passage, the key is the first command. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow because on that day, the grace of God will be given to you when Jesus returns. So what I don't think Peter has in mind is just simply be worried about the fact that when you appear before God, you might be in some trouble. What I think he's saying is, someday those of us who are believers in Jesus are going to get to appear before a judge who does not judge based on outward appearance or based on partiality but judges us for what we've done and rewards us based on impartiality. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, it says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. This is Peter's point. Look, when Jesus returns, one of the great things that's going to happen is he is going to reward those who faithfully served him. That we're going to appear before a judge who has not forgotten all the things we've done, but has promised that whatever we've done, we're going to be rewarded for. And the great thing about it is, is the judge that we're going to appear before is completely and totally impartial. I just finished reading a book called Quiet. I think the subtitle is The Power of Being an Introvert or something like that by a woman named Susan Cain. It's really a great book. Her thesis is that about a third to a half of all people in our country are introverts. We seem to have forgotten that because our culture celebrates extroverts. We celebrate people who are gregarious and outgoing and charismatic. We celebrate those people who are the life of the party, who can work a room. We celebrate those people who like to draw attention to themselves. Those people who are energized by crowds and by people and all that kind of stuff. And what she's trying to remind us of, you know what? Introverts are pretty great too. That a good portion of the benefits that we have in this culture are because people with introverted personalities have been making contributions to our society. Now, although she's not coming at this from a Christian point of view at all, you can hear in the argument the idea that, look, God created both extroverts and introverts. It's not that one is more like God than the other. It's that together they reveal who God is. And you know what this means for us? It means that when you're serving God, you're going to appear before a judge who's not concerned whether you're the life of the party or not. He's going to reward you not because you draw attention to yourself. This means you and I are free to serve Jesus without worrying about whether anybody notices or not. It means that we're free that if we've gone through a divorce, we don't have to run around and try to convince everybody else that we weren't really at fault. We're going to stand before a judge who knows 
It means that we're going to stand before a judge. We don't have to work hard to try to get our name on our building or somehow have our name on a plaque in order to be thought to be a valuable person. We don't have to have everybody know that we're do- what we're doing. We don't have to draw attention to ourselves. We don't have to say, look at me. Look at how I'm serving. Pay attention to me. Because someday we're going to appear before a judge who sees everything that we do and is going to reward us. And that he's not swayed by gregarious personalities. He's not fooled by people who have no substance behind the facade. You and I are going to appear before an impartial judge so that whether or not we're famous or popular or rich or everybody knows what we do or everybody thinks one thing, it doesn't matter. What matters is is who we genuinely are and what we've done for Christ. And when he appears, all that stuff is going to be brought out in the open for him to reward us and thank us and bless us for serving him. And if nobody else in the world noticed, if you're a mom who spent hours and hours and hours cleaning your house, cleaning up after kids, and your husband and your kids, nobody seems to notice, Peter's saying, the good news is God does. He's not unfaithful to forget about that, that when Jesus appears, what he's going to bring with him is a reward for what you've done. If you've been fired from your job for doing the right thing, but yet your boss has spun it in such a way or your co-works have spun it in such a way that you look guilty, you're free not to worry about that. Because when Jesus appears, he knows the truth. And he's going to reward you not on perception, but on reality. It means that you and I don't have to take revenge for wrongs that have been done to us. It means that we don't have to work to try to clear our name. It means we're free to just simply faithfully serve Jesus. Because someday he's going to return and we're going to stand before him. And Peter says, think about what's going to happen on that day. Think about what everything that you've done in secret, that person who has been scrimping and saving to try to have a little extra money so that they can give to help somebody else, but have done it with complete anonymity. On that day, Jesus is going to celebrate it. What you've done in secret is going to be brought out into the open for Jesus to thank you and reward you. And Peter says, the more you think about that, the more you think about the fact that all the names on buildings in the city are just going to be gone, the fact that every time your name is on a brick in some plaza somewhere, that's just going to be gone, all of the praise that you might have gotten from him is just going to be gone, but on that day, the praise you get from God will last forever. And Peter says, spend some time thinking about that. Spend some time thinking about what it's going to be like when the impartial judge of all humans shows up with grace to reward those who have been faithful in serving him in quiet ways. Fourth command. Verse 22. Love one another deeply from the heart. Love one another deeply from the heart. Now, it's not that Peter's not concerned with our love for non-Christians. He is. He's going to talk about that. But that's not what this is about. Love one another deeply is talking about our relationships within the Christian community. 
Peter's saying that we ought to love and serve those around us who are believers in Jesus. Again, not ignoring our responsibility to those who are not yet Christians. But he's just simply not talking about that at this point. He's saying, love one another deeply. Why? Well, again, think about the future. When Jesus Christ returns, those who have died in Christ will be resurrected. And the point that Peter is making about humanity is like grass. It's here for a little while and then it dies. The difference is, is God's eternal word when it is spoken to a frail, finite human being and we accept and believe the gospel, we become eternal beings. We are given eternal life. And on the day that Jesus returns, death will be defeated and the relationships that we have with each other will go on for eternity. A couple of weeks ago, I did a funeral for Chef Rod here at the church. He worked at the church for many years. He was a, just a, a great friend, uh, a faithful servant. But you know, one of the most interesting things about that funeral, I've done lots of funerals. One of the most interesting things about that funeral, I got to sit down with Rod beforehand and ask him, okay, exactly what do you want to have happen? And he's a very particular person and he had very particular desires for what he wanted to have happen at that funeral. One of the most interesting things was he said, there are three young girls that I want to be involved in my service because they have become my close friends. And so in the service, they read scripture. Now, as a Christian, that seemed great. That seemed fine. But I thought about it this week as I was thinking through this sermon and I thought, from a non-Christian point of view, why would any parent do this? Why would any parent encourage their young daughters to become friends with somebody who has a terminal illness? Why wouldn't you encourage your daughters to be busy playing the piano or making friends at school or, or trying to be uh, a good soccer player? Stuff that has some sort of, from their point of view, future potential. Why would you develop a friendship with someone who's not going to live very much longer? Well, frankly, from a non-Christian view, it doesn't make much sense. But Peter is saying, look, if you realize what's going to happen on the day that Jesus returns, it makes perfect sense. On the day Jesus returns, that friendship that these girls formed with Shephrod is going to continue for eternity. They're going to be friends together. This was not a waste of time. What's going to be gone on that day are the piano recitals and the soccer games and all the rest of the stuff. What will last are the friendships. That's what Peter's trying to say. Look, think about tomorrow. Not the 15 years from now when you try to think, well, well I'm not going to be a professional piano player. But the day when Jesus returns. When you realize that when he returns, those who have died in Christ will be resurrected and our relationship will continue forever. Then we're free to love one another. We're free to serve one another because death will not stop the relationship. Look, if all there is is this life, then the point is try to get as much out of this life as you can, earn as much money as you can, have as much comfort as you can, use people as much as you can to get what you want out of life. But if the point is that when Jesus returns, the people that you and I love and serve 
we will spend eternity with as neighbors in heaven? Well, then it's worth spending time loving each other. Then we're free not to think about ourselves, but about other people. Then we're free to encourage our children to befriend a brother in Christ who probably doesn't have very much longer to live because we know that that relationship that is begun now will continue for eternity. Peter's main point is don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Sit down and actually, what's it going to be like when Jesus returns? So that's the assignment I have for you. It's not my assignment. It's God's assignment. Spend some time thinking about that. Maybe you should do it in your family. Maybe you should do it in a small group. Maybe you should just do it by yourself. But consciously think through what's going to happen when Jesus returns. And how does that future affect how I live today? That's why I asked you in the beginning of the service. What advice would you give to yourself 10 years ago about your spiritual journey? The point is, is if you realize that 10 years from now or 50 years from now, whenever we stand before Jesus and Jesus returns, we will be obedient children. What is that thing about your life that God is saying, you don't have to be that anymore. You can be different. You don't have to be envious. You don't have to be full of lust. You don't have to be bound by greed. You don't have to live like the people around you because you have a different future. When you and I stop and think, look at this journey that we're on. Look who God is making us. We're going to become obedient children of a holy father in heaven. It means I don't have to act like the world around me. I don't have to behave like the world around me. This is the reason why I asked you the question at the beginning of the service. What's one thing from this past week that you're most looking forward to hearing Jesus talk about and reward you for when he returns? The Bible's very clear. God is not unjust. He will not forget what we've done. What is it from this past week? There are probably lots of things that we did this past week that were enjoyable, that were fun, that were good. But what's that thing from this past week that when Jesus returns, he's going to say, well done. Here is your reward. What's that thing that you did? What's that thing that I did? Peter says, the more you think about that future, the more it'll affect what you do today. This is the reason why I asked you at the beginning of the service. If God showed up today and said the people sitting around you here at Calvary Church this morning, that today's the magic day, the people sitting around you are going to be your neighbors in heaven, how would that affect how you interact with others? The point is, is that they very well may be. Is that the relationships that we're forming now the relationships that we're pouring into. Normally what we do on a Sunday morning is we greet the person sitting next to us around. That's great. But I'm guessing if that person's going to be your neighbor in heaven, you're going to spend more time loving them and serving them and forming memories with them and blessing them so that when you get to heaven, the relationship that you've started here is going to continue on for eternity. That's Peter's point. The more time we think about tomorrow and what it's going to be like when Jesus returns the more it's going to affect who we are today. Be holy, live in the fear of God and love one another only makes sense when you realize what our future is. And so Peter's key command, 
Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Find some way to sit down and think through what exactly is going to happen when Jesus returns. Who am I going to be at that point? What things about my life that I think matter now will not matter at that point? What are the things that I'm doing now that he is going to reward me for and bless me for? And what are the relationships that I'm investing in now that are going to pay dividends for eternity when we spend time together? Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Let's pray together. Lord God, I pray that you would give us the ability to think about tomorrow. Lord, as soon as we leave this place, the world is going to tell us to think about today. All of the trouble in the world around us, all of the behavior that's expected of us, all of the things that we have to do. Lord, I pray right now through your spirit that you would open up space in our hearts to be able to think about what's going to happen on the day that Jesus returns. Thank you for the assurance of that promise. Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of people who are able to live holy lives, to live in reverent fear, to love one another because of the future you have given to us. Lord, we do not control the future, but you do. You have granted us a more beautiful future than we could ever imagine. Help us to think about it and to live in light of it. Lord, I pray for those who are not yet Christians whose future is not good. Lord, I pray that they too, right now, would think about what's going to happen when Jesus returns. Lord, I ask that you would let them see that what you're offering them is a bright hope, a true future, a future of life, of relationships that are not ended by death, of a relationship with a father who loves us that we are free to serve, of the opportunity to be set free from what this world is doing and to not be conformed to its desires, but to be new people. And God, I pray this morning that you would create new life in their hearts as well. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.